Steve is Fulcher to the Irish Mythology Podcast, where this week you'll hear how Lou Lavada proves his value to the gods by playing a board game. I'm Stephanie Hearney. And we'll talk about ancient and modern celebrations of Lunasa, the August Harvest Festival named for Lou. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. In the last episode, we talked about how Lou was possibly a later arrival to Ireland than some of the other gods we've covered on the podcast. So this week, we'll look at other similarly named gods to see where he came from. We're going to look at some of his attributes and compare them to the likes of the continental Celtic god Lugus and the later Welsh mythological hero. And apologies to Welsh listeners, I absolutely butchered the pronunciation of this. Apologies to Wales. Apologies to Wales in general. (laughs) Uh, I butchered the pronunciation of this in the last episode, but um, I think it's... Clay Clow Guffus. But I do want to say right up front, despite what you might see on the internet, Lou is not a sun god. Yeah, that's a bit of misinformation from the 19th century that has unfortunately been reproduced in popular literature and online right up to the present day. Last week we heard how supernatural beings known as the Fomorians, led by the disgraced former god king Brez, have been raiding Ireland. They've been stealing livestock and pillaging the land. The two a day, that's the god people, led by Nuda, are reluctant to get involved, still hurting from their battle against the Firbolg. One young god, Lu, takes it upon himself to lead the fight back. And after defeating Brez and the Fomor in battle, he's off to Tara with his militia, the Riders of the Shi, to make sure Nuda reconsiders. We take it up from there today with our adaptation of sections 53 to 74 of the Second Battle of Maitura. Here's Steffi narrating The Rise of Lu La Fada. The scent of ale trickles through the gates of Tara. The outer field is a feast for the crows. All that remains of the fesh is scattered animal bones and cracked nutshells. This is going to smell worse before it smells better, Gamal MacFigal complains. His companion, Camel MacRiagal, half-arsely surveys the debris. Sure, the best we can do is leave it to the birds. Gamal rubs his belly and groans. Oh, what good would that do us? I'm starving looking at all of this. Camel snorts a laugh. The better we do this job, the better we'll feast after. You were only complaining about the smell a minute ago. How do you have an appetite? Gamel shrugs. Guard duty always makes me hungry, especially when they're all feasting in there. Camel glances at his comrade. Well, you know the drill. No one in who isn't supposed to be in on the last day. Shouldn't be any bother, then it's our time. The words are barely out of Camel's mouth when a great noise fills the air. Rumbling footsteps, cheering, chanting. The two guards strain to see the source of the commotion. Gamel's eyes expand as a ragtag band of thousands, all armed, march around the corner. Oh no. 
Camel put his hand on Gamel's shoulder and taps it twice. Leave this to me. The fesh is over save for the king's feast and this lot are not getting in. The warriors stop a hundred yards or so from the gate. A young man whose flowing golden curls are held in by a gold headband steps forward and stops just short of the gate. Camel steps forward to meet him. Sorry, lads, he won't be coming in today. The fesh is over. There's always next year. The young man smiles as if he has not heard what the guard said. Announce my arrival to the court. Camel shakes his head. Did you not hear what I said? It's council members only today. The young man continues to smile in a way Camel finds increasingly irritating. Announce my arrival. Nuda will welcome me if you do. Gamel steps forward and turning to Camel says, Great job you're doing there. He then turns his attention to the young man. Right then, who are you? I am Lu La Father, son of Cian, son of Jean Kecht of the Tua Day and of Etna, daughter of Balor of the Formor. Taltu of the Fur Bullock is my foster mother. I am here to claim my place at the court. Lu, I've heard your name all right, Gamel replies. Now hold on a minute, Camel interjects. What art do you practice? No one joins the court without mastering an art. Lou glances up to the sky in contemplation. I am a builder, he replies. Camel shakes his head. We have one of those, Luchta Mach Luchta. A master of his art, Gamel adds. Lou thinks for a second. I am a smith. Camel rolls his eyes. Have you not heard of Gobnu? That arm he crafted for Nuada, fantastic, says Gamel. Lou thinks again. I am a warrior and a champion. Have one, Camel replies. Akma, says Gamel. Harpist, Lou adds quickly. The two guards shake their heads. Poet? Lou fires back. Have. Camel shoots back just as quickly. Sorcerer. Have. Cupbearer? Try again. Brazier. Uh, one more, go on. Physician? Gamel laughs. How do you not know that one? That's your granddad. Camel smiles and shakes his head. You're out of luck, lad. Maybe someday there'll be an opening for you, but... Lou puts up his hand to interrupt Camel's speech. Does Nilda have anyone at his court who is skilled in all of these arts? The two guards look at each other and shrug. Go ask him then, Lou adds. Camel turns to Gamel. I'll go ask. You wait here and make sure they don't try anything funny. As Camel walks back to the gate, Gamel shouts after him. 
Could you bring me back a bit of pig meat or a few nuts or something? The fesh at Tara is winding down. Now that the masses have returned home, it is time for Nuada's feast. The council of the two a day sit around a large table that is laden with food and drink. Nuada sits at its head. He raises his cup in the air and toasts. To the two a day, to Ireland. The gods raise their cups. To the two a day, to Ireland, to Nuada. They all drink, none of them stopping until their cups are empty. Now, Nuada announces, to the matter of the country. A young god came to me only three days ago and told me of a Formorian attack on the Shi of Baljarig. There are murmurs of concern around the table. Akma speaks up. I've heard rumours of a battle at Mamor and Aini that the riders of the Shi have driven the Formorians back. A small raiding party, from what I have heard, Nuada replies. They won't be taken by surprise again. Gobnu taps the table to indicate that he is going to speak. The Formor are dangerous, but they should be no match for the weapons from my forge. We lost many warriors in the last war, Jean Keck laments. I can heal most wounds, but if the head is cut off, there's nothing even the Dogda can do. What of it? Macha growls as her long orange-red hair seems to ignite like fire. More bones for me to feast on. Commotion spreads around the table. Arguments and counter-arguments are exchanged in rapid fire. Nuada stands and raises his palms to try and calm the debate. Akma's sunburned face glows redder than usual. He slams his fist on the table. I say we fight. Silence, Nuada shouts. The last war cost us so... Before he can continue, Kamal, the gatekeeper, enters the hall. He quickly genuflects before Nuada. What is it, Gamal? Nuada asks, a hint of irritation in his voice. It's Kamal, sir, the guard replies. Kamal, then what is so important you had to interrupt us? A warrior has come before the court. His name is Lou, and he claims to be accomplished in every art there is. <laughs> Ripples of laughter spread around the table. But Jean Kecht speaks up. Lou is my grandson. He is an incredibly talented young god, even if he is a little rash. He would be a fine addition to the court. Nuada pauses for a moment as he remembers how Jean Kecht attached his new arm and turned silver to flesh, joint and sinew. Let him in so, but we'll have to test these skills. Before he is welcomed to the hall, he must beat the best fichel players we have. Camel genuflects and returns to his post. Seven tables await Lou as he enters the outer forge.
There is a fickle board on each table and an opponent sitting on one side of them all. Each of the tables has a vacant chair for Lou to play. He sits at the first one and regards the board, a grid of squares, and upon those squares, 28 game pieces, 14 gold and 14 silver. Lou's opponent is an old man with hairs growing out of every part of his nose. He smiles at Lou, revealing that he hasn't a tooth in his head. I'd say you've played a fair few games in your time, Lou remarks. I have, the old man replies, gesturing towards the banquet hall. And the last time I lost a game, Ochid MacArk was sitting on the throne in there. That's a fair while, all right, says Lou, making his first move. It only takes him six more moves to win. Nobody wins at Fickle in seven moves, says the old man in anger. This is some form of trickery. Would you like to see me do it again? Lou asks, already moving on to the next table. His opponent this time is a young woman with void black hair and tattoos of the mark of the Morrigan on both arms. No one beats me, she says as Lou sits down. You'll be no match for the magic of my game. Again, he wins in seven moves, this seven different to the last. He repeats the feat five more times, each time in seven moves and each time the moves are different. By now, there is a crowd gathered, hailing Lou's feats with cheers and rapturous applause, and the assembled Fickle experts agree that from now on, winning a game in seven moves will be called the Rune of Lou. When word reaches Nilda of Lou's feats at the board game, he summons him to the court. All eyes are on Lou as he enters the banquet hall. Some eyes show admiration, others lust, and others still distrust. Lou takes a seat beside Akma. Akma looks him up and down. They say you're strong. I am, Lou replies. You don't look that strong, says Akma, lifting one of Lou's arms and examining it. Would you be open to a challenge? Lou nods. Akma gets up from his seat and gestures towards the large flagstone in the middle of the banquet hall. I've heard that the fur bullock needed 80 oxen to get this up the hill. Akma straightens his back and bends his knees. Wrapping his arms around the rock, he heaves it out of the ground lifts it over his head and fires it through the wall and out into the courtyard. He looks at Lou. Throw it back so. Lou walks out through the hole in the wall. Bystanders stare, mouths open at the giant rock. Lou straightens his back and bends his knees. He wraps his arms around the rock, lifts it over his head and flings it back. It lands back in the exact spot that Akma had ripped it from. 
Akma leads the applause of the royal court. You are strong. You should be the king's champion. Perhaps, says Nula, you can lead us to victory against the Formor. Take my seat. You will be king until it's done. Nuada stands and gestures to the throne. Lou strides over and sits. He looks around the room at the faces of the more experienced gods. We are going to war with the Formor. You will all raise armies, every able-bodied man and woman of fighting age, every god, demigod, mortal, we will win. Akma, you're my champion. We'll go to see the Dagda in the morning. Jean Kecht, Gobnu, you will come too. After a moment's silence, the assembled gods rise to their feet, applaud and cheer. When the applause subsides and they are all seated again, Gobnu is the first to speak. I hear you are a fine harpist. Would you give us a tune? Lou agrees, and the court harpist, Aukhan Mach de Chelmos, lends him his instrument. I will play three songs, says Lou. The first tune is a sorrowful one. It is so powerful that it causes everyone at court to cry. The second tune is so joyful that it lifts the spirits of all who are assembled so they are merry and rejoice. When he is finished, Lou announces, Now we need rest for the battles ahead. This song will send you all to sleep until morning. He begins to play, and one by one, the gods are overcome with tiredness. One by one, they fall asleep. Two more minutes till we feast, Gamal announces as he leans against the wall by the outer gate. Thank the gods, Gamal replies. I won't have to listen to any more of your moaning. Gamal pokes his head around the gate. The lads on the second shift are cutting it fine, though. They, Gamal interrupts him with a shh. What's that sound? Gamal listens. I don't hear any. Wait. Oh, yeah. Music. It's just music. Camel rubs his eyes. Lovely tune all the same. Gods, I'm wrecked. Are you wrecked? Gamal leans heavily against the wall. Yeah, I'm, I might just rest my eyes a second. The two guards close their eyes and fall to the ground. Among the scattered nutshells and animal bones, the remains of the fesh as the crows feast and Lou's sleep music trickles through Tara's gate. As a means of political change, winning a few games of vehicle is probably a lot more fun than your average general election campaign. Yeah, and I strongly suspect it'll be far more entertaining than your average primetime debate, to be <laughs> honest. But anyway, and actually you wouldn't necessarily need a lot of cash for posters or leaflets or ads or any of that jazz. That's know? true. Just years of practice. Though Lou probably does have an unfair advantage being naturally gifted at everything. 
Yeah, being a god probably helps. Um, now, we don't exactly know what the rules of Fickle were. The consensus is, because this is a game that existed in mythology, or in the, in the writings of Irish mythology, and the consensus is it was played on a board that had a grid layout and had an equal number of game pieces on each side of the board. So it could have been something like chess or maybe drafts or checkers. And the modern Irish name for chess is Fichel. Uh, so at the very least, whoever decided that thought that there was a similarity. So the name of the game actually means wood sense. And there was a Welsh game called Gwythbish uh, that meant the same thing and also became the modern Welsh name for chess. Whatever the rules were, it carries a lot of prestige in Irish mythology as its Britonic equivalent does in Welsh mythology. In the third subtale of The Wing of Attain, Midder plays a series of high-stakes games against Oku Aram, and in Anton Bocunia, the King of Ulster, Cruhar MacNessa, is said to spend a third of his day playing it. Actually, Cruhar MacNessa's life sounds a lot like, you know, Karl Marx's description of perfect <laughs> communism in the, ger- in the German o- ideology. Cause chilling out in the morning, hunting in the afternoon. Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact quote. It's not chilling out in the morning. But yeah, but Cru- Cruhar <laughs> spends his morning watching lads play hurling, plays Fihil in the evening, and then has an rest or something for the rest of the day. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, there's also a mention of Queen Maeve of Connacht playing against her husband, Alil, in On Tonbo Frock. In the Welsh medieval tale, The Dream of Runnaby, uh, King Arthur plays Gwythbush against Owain Maburin. And does he? <laughs> People who don't watch Gavel and Stacey <laughs> are not going to get that reference. I think they probably won't, but sure. Look, Welsh speakers. That's will in find for it. the Gavin and Stacey fans. That's in for the Welsh, the Welsh speakers and the Gavin and Stacey fans yeah. in this, uh, who are listening. But anyway, there's two interesting t- details about the game in this story. <laughs> How long have you been waiting? Oh, to make so, that long. Joke? <laughs> so long, so long. Jesus, wept. Right. Anyway, so the two interesting details about the game in this story. The first is that it seems to have some sort of magical or divinatory properties the second is that it mentions the names of some of the pieces now this could be a completely fictitious version of the game but it's the closest we have to any details other than that the pieces were sometimes cast in gold or silver so while playing the game the story tells us that arthur's squires attack owen's ravens and owen's ravens attack arthur's squires and that these moves on the game board are replicated on the battlefield it kind of reminds me of the game of chess between the knight and death in the film The Seventh Seal. Have you seen that? Oh, of course no. not. I've only seen four <laughs> films probably in my life. But anyway. But basically death has come to Spoiler take... Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> anyway. Basically death has come to take the knight, but he agrees that he can stay alive as long as this game of chess continues. Now, I won't tell you who won the game in case you haven't seen it but it's it's a great film it's set during the black death anyway you know my favorite <laughs> film is mean girls <laughs> of course i've not seen this anyway anyway maybe squires and ravens were pieces in the game and maybe it was considered to have magical properties but all of that could have been invented for a dramatic effect by the author of the tale now we do that ourselves sometimes but at least we tell you what we've changed and why we did it yeah, the games of Fickle that Lou plays in the second battle of Maitura are not actually described in any way. In fact, they happen 
off camera, uh, to borrow a term from modern TV and cinema. It simply says that all of the fickle boards of Tara were brought to Lou and he won all the stakes. So the detail about the game in our adaptation was an addition. Um, another bit we added was the debate about going to war between the two a day before Lou arrives. We base this on Nuada's attitude towards fighting the Formorians in the fate of the Sons of Turin, which we covered last week. The only other significant addition of ours here was adding a bit of dialogue for the gatekeepers. In the saga, it just says that Tara has two gatekeepers, and although it names both of them, it's actually just Camel who is on duty when Lou arrives. So you just get Lou arriving and Camel questioning him on his skills, and you have that like big list of skills. We fleshed out the scene a bit and gave Camel and Gamel a bit more of a role, making them sort of the comic relief, which is something I actually really enjoy doing when you get a character when you get a couple of characters like that. Yeah, there's a very strong waiting for Godot element, I yeah, think, yeah. between Camel and Gamel. <laughs> well, I don't want to start comparing myself to Samuel Beckett, but um, yeah, it's definitely an influence there. That scene, both in the original and our adaptation, illustrates two things. Firstly, to be accepted as one of the two a day, you have to be highly skilled in one of the arts from a pre-approved list. And secondly, it shows us that Lou is a master of all of them. This makes it difficult to pin down the kind of deity he actually was. Now, we mentioned in the last episode that we are fairly sure he was associated with crop cultivation and the harvest because of his association with the Harvest Festival Lunacy. What we do know is that there were two Tuha uh, called Lugni, which would be people of Lugus, one in Connacht and one in Tara. These names are found inscribed on Ohm stones, and Ohm is a kind of script used in stone carving, mainly in the Proto-Irish language. It's generally believed that Ohm inscription only dates back to the 4th century CE or 2nd century at the earliest. This is interesting because th this tribal name doesn't appear on Ptolemy's 2nd century map of Ireland, which might support the theory of Lou as a late addition to Irish paganism that we mentioned in the last episode. What it does tell us, though, is that Lou would have been a focal point of social cohesion for these two. Their identity as people would have been intrinsically linked to their veneration of Lou. We also find Ohm inscriptions of personal names linked to Lou. These would have been people of high status, which lines up with names that appear in the pseudo-histories like Lugad Makan, who is listed in legend as a king of Tara. So we can probably surmise that as far as these Tua that venerated Lu were concerned, he was associated with ideas of identity, sovereignty and kingship. For further evidence of Lu's role, we can do something we have done with a few gods and turn to comparative mythology. Now, when we do this, we have to be very careful not to jump to conclusions. Comparative mythology gives us clues rather than answers, and some clues also have to be taken with a grain of salt. So the obvious starting point for a comparative approach is the continental Celtic deity Lugus. The names are not only similar, but in Proto-Irish, they are actually the same, as you might have noticed when we were talking about the Ohm inscriptions. The problem here is that we don't know an awful lot about the continental Lugus. It's generally believed that Lugus was the deity Julius Caesar was referring to in commentaries on the Gallic War when he wrote, and I'll read the quote, They worship as their divinity, Mercury in particular, and have many images of him and regard him as the inventor of all arts. They consider him 
the guide of their journeys and marches and believe him to have very great influence over the acquisition of gain and mercantile transactions. There are a lot of problems with using Caesar as our guide here though. Firstly, he only ever calls the Gaulish gods by the name of the Roman deity he considers their equivalent, so he never actually says that the Gaulish version of Mercury is Lugus. Secondly, Caesar is the leader of a conquering force. As Irish people, we probably should think twice before we take the depiction of the colonised by the coloniser as gospel. Yes. <laughs> Caesar was attempting to assimilate the Gauls into Roman society, we have to remember. Finally, the link between Caesar's Gaulish Mercury and Lou is often backed up by reference to Lou's epithets, describing him as multi-skilled. But this is the Irish Lou we're talking about. Caesar describes his Mercury as an inventor of all the arts. But that's kind of looking at things the wrong way around. We should be able to make direct links other than the obvious linguistic one between Lou and Lugus without the intermediary of Caesar's Mercury, which is then filtered through medieval saga and pseudo-history. There are inscriptions mentioning Lugus in continental Europe, but very few actually mention his role or attributes. The only one that gives us any hint comes from Osma in uh, Castilla y León in Spain, which suggests he was important to shoemakers. There isn't any obvious link between the Irish Lou and shoes, but there is one with a Welsh mythological figure called Clay Clay Giffus, who as a boy is disguised as a cobbler by his uncle. There's a real streak of medieval patriarchy in the story of Clay as a shoemaker. I just want to actually say that, just in case you're wondering what the link is, Clay is actually spelled L-L-E-U. So that's why last week I butchered it by calling him Lou. This is going to be like the Irish language equivalent of when someone pronounces something wrong and then there's always (laughs) someone in the room to go, well, actually, there's a road. (laughs) There's a road in the Glenties where they say it like this. (laughs) Go on. Anyway. Where was I? Yeah. Streak of medieval patriarchy. So go on, tell me about the medieval <laughs> patriarchy, Mark. So <laughs> Clay's mother, Arianrod, has disowned him because he's born during a test of her virginity, which is carried out by her uncle Matt and her brother Gwydion. Problematic. Uh, the, the reason for the test is that her uncle Matt will die unless he keeps his feet in the lap of a virgin when he is not at war. Of course. Many, many a great man has met his downfall because he couldn't find a virgin to rest his feet on. Apparently that's how Stalin went in the end. (laughs) 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 For for the test, Gwydion gets Arianrod to step over his magic wand. His magic wand, is it? (laughs) Yeah. It's here, ah, here, it's gone from like, I need a virgin to rest my feet on to here, love, will you step over my magic wand? I mean, these bios would definitely be getting me too'd today. Absolutely, but if all that wasn't bad enough, the worst thing that could possibly happen when your suitability to be a footstool is being tested (laughs) actually happens. Yeah, so in that story, Arianrod gives birth to twins. Everyone is so shocked by the first baby that only Gideon notices the second and he wraps him up and takes him away. And meanwhile, the first twin, Dylan, goes to live in the sea as a selkie-like creature and Arianrod runs away in shame. Which is really unfortunate for her. Like, I mean, what did she do? Right? Anyway, uh, years later, Gideon takes a clue to see his mother and she rejects him again. And this time she places a tongued on him that he will have no name until she gives him one. And a tongued is like the Irish gesh. It's somewhere in between like a curse and a taboo. 
It's after this that uh, Gwydion and Clay come back disguised as shoemakers. When Gwydion is measuring Harry Anhod's feet, Clay throws a stone at a wren that is perched on the side of a boat and he knocks it off. I think it's like a very precise thing too. He hits it between a tendon and a joint or something like that. And seeing this, Arianrod says, Megane, Clay, Clow, Guffis. Upon which Gwydion announces that she's just named her son. Now I've seen this translated two ways and I think it might be important to delve into this a bit more when we come to talking about Lou's epithets and etymologies of his name in the next episode. So I'm going to do a bit more research on that. But the first translation, and it's it's the usual translation, is that the fair-haired one has a steady hand, or something like the it's with a steady hand that the fair-haired one struck the bird, or something. But I've also seen the little lion has a steady hand. If there are any experts on Welsh mythology or Middle Welsh listening, please drop us a line and let us know what you think of these translations, because we would absolutely love to hear from you. It is important to note that Chlyachlaigefis is not explicitly described as a god in the Mabinogion, the collection of stories that he appears in. He appears as more of a heroic figure like Fionn McCool, who is also strongly linked to Lou. The stories of the Welsh Chlu are also completely different to those about the Irish Lou. The only obvious connections are that he is fair hair and wields a spear. He is more than likely a medieval echo of the earlier botanic version of Lugus, but we can't say anything for sure about that god at all. And we're not saying that Lugus definitely wasn't Caesar's Gaulish Mercury either. We're just saying that there isn't enough evidence to decide one way or the other. Before we move on from the Welsh clay, though, uh, I just want to mention something I came across that I thought was kind of funny. It said that he can only be killed at dusk, wrapped in a net, with one foot on a cauldron and one on a goat, with a spear that has been forged for a year during the hours when everyone is at mass. And in some versions, he also has to be beside a river. That is incredibly specific. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's like, it's like something from a video game with a ridiculous level of difficulty. Yeah. I mean, you'd be hard pushed to get that done these days. Sure, no one's going to mass. You know? <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so look, I suppose the net and the spear parts are doable, but, well, maybe. But how how do you get him to stand with one foot on a cauldron and one on a goat at dusk? Especially if he knows that's the only way he can be killed. You yeah. know, you're not going to, like, trick him into, like, here, just, would you mind just putting your paw on that <laughs> cauldron and then your other crib on, on this goat? And also, and how do you get the goat to stand that's a, still? That's it. I was just that just crossed my mind. How do you get a goat to stand still while there's a man with, you, with his foot on on you, with his other foot on a cauldron? Mad. It sounds absolutely mad. It sounds like a scene from the Hardy Books. Yeah. <laughs> As we were saying, there's very little we can learn about Lou from the Continental Lugus or the Welsh clay or Caesar's Gaulish Mercury, but that's not actually such a bad thing. Why? Because as we said in our last episode, Lou is probably the best attested of the pre-Christian Irish gods. We have records of a harvest festival in his name. We know of two that are named for him. We have literary and archaeological evidence that he was associated with kingship or at least nobility and sovereignty. And while maintaining a healthy degree of scepticism about medieval sources, we can note that at least in the 9th century, he was regarded as skilled in all the arts. 
Yeah, we can safely say that for at least some of the Irish of the early century CE, Lu or Lugus is some sort of sovereignty deity and a harvest god. We can make educated guesses about the rest. If the medieval depiction of him as skilled in all of the arts is an accurate depiction of how he was seen by those who venerated him, we're probably looking at a deity on his way to becoming the sole god of a monotheistic religion. Now, it's not hard to imagine a situation where Rome never adopts Christianity and as a result, it never comes to Ireland. In that alternate reality, the likelihood is that we'd all have been brought up as Lou worshippers, maybe. Yeah, you'd have people wearing spear pendants instead of crucifixes. Although it'd be more of a cauldron man myself now. But, uh, <laughs> the, the dag of her life. <laughs> yeah. The likelihood is that what we see happening in the centuries just before the arrival of Christianity is that the two that venerate Lou become more powerful and influential. This could be linked to a gradual move away from pastoral nomadism to a resurgence in crop cultivation. And we discussed the archaeological evidence for this in the last episode. And we mentioned a legendary figure called Tuil Tekmar, who is exiled to Britain and returns with an army to conquer. When he defeats the armies of the four provinces, he, he takes territory from each and creates the fifth province, Mead. Now, this is myth and pseudo-history, of course, but it's a foundation myth of an embryonic nation dominated by an increasingly powerful nobility who worshipped Lou. We haven't finished with Lou yet, but we'll leave it there for today on him and come back in the next episode to talk about some of those epithets and etymologies and see what else they can tell us about his role. Yeah, there's just so much to cover with him, but we want to get back to Lunasa again because the official date of that celebration is August 1st, which is this coming Sunday. We talked about its ancient significance as a harvest festival last time and mentioned the Talton Assembly, sometimes known as the Talton Games, named after Taltu. Uh, yeah, who it, is supposedly Lou's foster mother. But yeah, the, the Talton Assembly or Enoch Talton took place annually at Lunasa and it was a very important event for the O'Neill dynasty who, as it happened, claimed descent from Tuil Tecmar. It did involve sporting competition, but it was also a place where all of the highborn members of the Tua gathered to discuss and decide matters of a political nature. There would also be various fairs where livestock and other goods could be traded and marriages could also be held during this event. So the assembly took place at the site of the modern day townland of Telltown in County Meath, which is between the larger towns of Navan and Kells. <laughs> what's up, what's up, Navan? Go on, Navan. Um, so yeah, it's between Navan and Kells and it's attested in written sources as far back as the 7th century. And archaeology has revealed that the site was occupied in the Iron Age. So the event could go back to then. Someday I'm just going to do an episode on about all the great things about Navan and the, the great people that have come from Navan. Um. <laughs> you and a number of comedians. <laughs> and Sir Francis Beaufort, inventor of the wind scale. I suppose we and, must. And Pierce Brosnan, if we must throw him in. Yeah. Does Maria Edgeworth count as... No, uh, she, she's Edwards, Edgeworth's town. Yeah, I she suppose. was long. Yeah. That's near enough Navin, isn't it? No, it's Longford. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. But, but wait a minute. She, she was, she was Beaufort's sister, though, wasn't she? Was she? Was she Beaufort's sister? No, she wasn't. What was she? She was related to Beaufort. Go away. Hold on. Yeah. Or was she his niece or something? Well, it, I'm finding out. One Ooh. of the Edgeworths was a Beaufort. 
She was the second child of Richard Lovell Edgeworth, who had 22 children by four wives. Wow. God, he was busy, wasn't he? God, yeah. He was an incarnation of the doctor, maybe, you know. Right, okay. So her dad, I think, married one of the Beauforts. Ah. Is the connection. It's definitely a connection anyway. But um, just for the listeners who are a bit confused. Right, so hang on. Her dad married the older sister of Francis Beaufort, which would have made Francis Beaufort her step-uncle. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so I knew there was some sort of a link. But Maria Edgeworth was wrote a famous novel called Castle Rackrent, which is a satire on the landed gentry. And Sir Francis Beaufort was... As I mentioned, came from Navin, which is my hometown, in case you're wondering why I got all excited about it. And he, he w- sailed on the Beagle. It's been a long lockdown. He, he sailed on the Beagle with Charles Darwin and he invented the wind scale. So when you go Stormforce, whatever, that's Francis Beaufort from Navin. And he has a sea named after him. How many people have that? The one up at the north of Canada. That's the, the Beaufort Sea. And he also has a roundabout. And a part of the shopping centre named after him in Navin, which isn't as impressive. But anyway. There you go. Yeah. Some great people from Navin. Who else is from Navin? Pierce Brosnan. Uh, Dylan Moran. Tom Hector O'Huckagon. I like yeah. his radio stuff. Um, yeah, I like him on the radio. Yeah. A lot of other great people, but they wouldn't be famous. Like, you know. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose not. I saw a documentary years ago, actually, and I was trying to track it down on... YouTube and BBC website, but um, I think it was on the BBC. It was about Lunasa and the Talton Assembly. And they interviewed a man from Telltown who was at the time in his 70s, if I recall correctly. And he was saying that around Lunasa, they would ride horses around a very specific route. And it was the same route every year. And no one really knew why. When the archaeological excavations happened uh, on the area around Telltown to look for stuff to do it, the Talton Assembly, they found what they thought to be the track where the horse and chariot racing took place at the games wow. on the very same route. God, just goes to show how strong folk memory can be. Yeah. You know, I think loads of people like in various towns will always have like a vague notion of something happening somewhere, but have no real sense of like how they know it, why yeah. they know it, what exactly it was. But anyway, so... Now Lunasa, like the other pagan festivals, is undergoing a revival in an era where there is increased interest in the pagan past. But it never went away, you know. Uh, There are several fairs and events that take place around Ireland at the end of July and beginning of August. Reek Sunday is the last Sunday of July and it involves a Christian pilgrimage to the top of a mountain called Croke Patrick, which is undertaken in bare feet. If done properly, if you're hardcore. And if you're not hardcore, why bother? Well, yeah, no, why bother? Yeah, sure. Like, it's kind of cheating, you know. In other parts of the country, the last Sunday of July or the first Sunday of August is known as Crom Dews Sunday. Yeah, the Celtic scholar Marion McNeil believed that the, this was like linked to Crom Crook and the story we told on our St. Patrick's Day special of how St. Patrick destroys this old pagan deity. She speculates that it could be a Christianized version of Lou's battle with Balor. But probably the most famous early August harvest festival is the Puck Fair in Clorglin County, Kerry. And if you only know one thing about this festival, it's probably that the goat is crowned king for the duration of the event. 
this will sound very peculiar for people who have never heard of this before, but what happens in the center of the town, um, and there are really interesting old photos of this from like the 50s in black and white, but they build what is essentially a large scaffold structure and the goat who is, it's meant to be, I mean, they chase this goat. I mean, well, I, I don't know if they still chase this goat. I don't know where the goat comes from, but anyway, it's, a, you know, it's a big wild goat and he's brought into the town and he's hoisted up to the top, the very, very top of this enormous scaffold. I'm not entirely sure how tall it is, but like, I mean, if I don't know how much you know about goats, but I mean, they're 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 ver- very good with very high, <laughs> you know, with with great heights. So like, they're they're not, you know, it's it's not in any distress or anything. But it is like, I mean, there's footage on YouTube of the goat being hoisted up, and that does look very peculiar. I'm not entirely sure how they put the goat on it you know, back when they weren't using sort of hyper-hire cranes or whatever <laughs> it is they use. Um, and the goat goes up there for like, uh, you know, a day or whatever and kind of chills out and looks down and everyone says, oh, look, it's the king, it's King Puck. Um, and a child, a local girl from a school will be crowned queen of the Puck Fair. And I think she wins a prize. Um, She's not put up on the... No, no, she's not hoisted (laughs) anywhere. She's not hoisted anywhere. Actually, I've seen footage on on YouTube of uh, a couple of the kids who've won it in the past. And they're always, you know, very lovely, very polite. And they talk about raising money for charity and and stuff like that. Very, very wholesome and weirdly pagan (laughs) at the same time. It's yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting thing. I I wonder, like, you know, you were wondering how they, they used to get them up there before cranes and stuff. I suppose that. The people were fairly were sturdier maybe back then, you know, all the spuds and buttermilk. Yeah. So they probably maybe. just like had a goat on their back and climbed up a ladder. There's some weight in it. I mean, oh, have yeah. you seen the size of those goats? Like oh, they're massive. if you're driving around the ring of Kerry and you know, you see the goats out on the roads and stuff and they are beasts. Well they always go for for all the biggest ones they can find, like I don't know what they're doing yeah. down there in Kerry. They're living they are they're living deliciously, as they mm. say in the film. But yeah, yeah. Um, You've not seen that film, have you? Which uh, is it called the, the film about the goat? It's is it called Black Philip? Is that what? It's oh called? right, no, I I've seen terrifying. I've seen trailers and stuff, but I don't think I've actually seen the film. So an old college friend of mine called uh, Francis McCaffrey is from Kilorglin, and I had a chat with him about the Puck Fair, and he filled me in a bit on the background. Yes, um, Puck Fair is indeed a quite an interesting festival, and uh, is something that's celebrated in Kilorglin in County Kerry on the 10th, 11th and 12th of August. Uh, like most things in, in Irish history, it's very hard to find um, some credible references to how old or how long this um, traditional Irish fair has been going for. Uh, but there are two credible references from the, the 17th century. Um, the first was by a local landlord at the time called Jenkin, uh, Jenkins Conway, and he had the uh, registered the right to collect a sum for every animal bought at this August fair, um, and that's one reference. The second reference is a uh, is is quite good. It's uh, a charter by King James in uh, sixteen o three, uh, granting legal status to the existing uh, fair in Kilorglin. and it's usually based on this reference that Kilorglin and Puck Fair claim to be the uh, the oldest festival in Ireland but also with this charter I know the fair in Ballycastle in Antrim as well was also um, uh, registered at this time. 
you know, they'd be the only kind of credible kind of references. But, you know, it, it, it falls in line with the harvest season. And I think that, you know, there there is evidence that the fair was going for quite a, some time before um, the, the 1600s. And, uh, you know, the in, in Calorglan, there would be quite a lot of, um, you know, fairs around the horses, the goats, the cattle, the sheep, things like that as well. So um, it falls in line with, you know, one of the, the four times of the year, uh, the four main festivals. And, uh, you know, so there could be some reference as well to, you know, some some pagan times or, or something like that. I know many people associate the, the goats with, with some pagan rituals and pagan symbols and things like that. But, you know, personally, I just think it was, um, it was a time of year that the harvest was there people were trading animals and the fair just developed from from that time of year that that's my own kind of like opinion on it anyway there are some kind of other references as well that that you might um might find interesting um one relates to to Daniel O'Connell which of course anyone who's interested in Irish history would know uh is a, this very famous barrister from from county Kerry and um in in 1808 he was just before he was kind of really getting famous he um he represented um uh this this local landlord called Harmon Blennerhassett who had uh, kind of fallen out with the uh, the powers that be in Dublin castle and uh usually he would um levy tolls on the sales of animals and uh he wasn't quite happy that he had lost his uh you know his money so like like most people when once your money's been hit you're you're usually not too happy. So um Blenner Hassett he enlisted, you know, Daniel O'Connell to to help him. And uh in an effort to kind of, you know, to to get around regulation as was common at the time, they looked at the charter and the rules and it was like uh, uh he couldn't levy against um you know cows or sheep or or horses. And uh so he decided that they were going to uh to, to make a goat fair because goats wasn't on the list of animals. And uh, to celebrate this this victory, they hoisted a goat on the stand on, uh, you know, into the air and on August the 10th in 1808. So perhaps that's how it evolved into being associated with a goat and puck fair, that it was an animal fair. Uh, but who knows, like it's, it's, it's like most things in history, um, you're you're looking for all of these references, and then you kind of just just develop your own theory. So, uh, yeah, look, you know, if you're if you're interested in in Clorglin history, look, go go to Puckfair.ie. I think people on the show listen to the show might be interested. in Fran actually makes and sells shillelaghs uh, and traditional Irish walking sticks, and they're they're made out of blackthorn. I have a website called uh, McCaffrey Crafts. Uh, that's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y crafts.com. And I make handmade uh, blackthorn walking sticks and shillelaghs, hiking sticks as well. And uh, this would be, um, you know, what, what I do is my, my full-time job. So if any of your listeners are interested in, in getting a unique piece, uh, you know, that, that is authentic as you can get because it grows out of Irish soil, I'm the guy to speak to if you're, you're interested. So uh, again... Francis McCaffrey, McCaffrey Crafts, you know, and I have a, I have a YouTube channel as well. Why not plug that as well? Just search my name, Francis McCaffrey, and, uh, you know, you can you can hear me talk about different things. I have an interest as well in, in faction fighting, 
from from the uh, you know the the eighteen hundreds, which is another quite interesting part of Irish history that isn't highlighted. So I, I have a whole series on that. I think about eighteen videos up as well. I wouldn't mind one myself. Nice fancy traditional bit of weaponry. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, or a nice Irish souvenir, depending on how you view them. But uh, sadly, that is all we have time for today. We will be back in two weeks to find out about Lou's meeting with the Dagda and his quest to find out the fate of his father, who never made it to the battle at Marmor and Aini. But if you can't get enough of the Irish Mythology podcast, you might consider becoming a patron. The show will always be free to listen to, but it is not free to make. You can support our work for as little as three euro a month and you'll get story scripts and story only audio as well as early access to the next episode from five euro a month you can get extra bonus content but if you don't have cash to spare right now you can support us by sharing our episodes with family and friends and on social media speaking of social media you can find us on twitter at irish mythology p on facebook irish mythology podcast on instagram at irish mythology and online at irish mythology podcast.ie and if you're listening on apple podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show do us a favor and give us a five star rating it really helps us reach a wider audience and it would really really help us if you could share these episodes with others and remember if you are lifting and throwing something that would take 80 oxen for the fur bullock to move up a hill like Akma learned <laughs> on his safe pass course, bend the knees. And keep the back straight. And keep your back straight. Slán live. <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.